0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Coming Soon by Stephen Milhauser, which was published in The New Yorker in December of 2013.
1: As Levinson stepped onto his front walk, he noticed with surprise that Mazowskis house across the street had grown larger, Stretched out on both sides, almost to the property lines. When he turned right and set off for town, he saw that the house of his neighbors, the Sandlers, was stucco instead of white shingle. It all must have happened while he was away.
0: The story was chosen by Chang Rae Lee, whose sixth novel, My Year Abroad, will be published in February. Hi, Chang Rae. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for doing this again. It's been a while, but uh it's my pleasure <laughs> the last time you were on the podcast, you chose a story by Don Delillo, and this time Stephen millhauser and I feel as though both of those writers it's not that they're similar in style, but they both tend to have a sort of conceptual nugget that they build the fiction around. I wonder if you agree with that and if that's something that attracts you in fiction
1: uh yeah, absolutely, I' uh, particularly with Stephen Millhauser you know, maybe because he's written so many short stories. And, and conceptually, I think short stories, um, not that novels don't do this, but, uh, you know, a short story, because of its necessity for compression, uh, for a certain kind of, you know, angled engagement, a certain conception of either in language or in form or in theme, um, usually, you know, a marriage of all those things, it's advantaged. By uh, the form of the short story, so and with Milhauser particularly, his stories to me uh, have a certain kind of quiet acceleration to them, uh, which which I really love in fiction. Um, in in certain fun ways, it reminds me of certain stories of Raymond Carver's, uh, although they're quite different. Mm-hmm. But Stephen Milhauser's stories always have this, I think, wonderful bonding between. Character, language, and setting, uh, which all stories should have, but with the Milhauser stories, they're quite exquisite, and and I love the compaction of them.
0: Yeah, so this one has one character, one setting, and it certainly has a velocity to it. Do you think it's characteristic of what Milhauser does?
1: Yeah, well, it's it doesn't feel immediately fast, right? I mean, he, what's what's great about uh, this story coming soon is that. It really takes its time with with so many wonderful, meaningful, uh, and memorable details. Uh, it, the first the first half of the story is really setting up the landscape. But the sense of it is that of course we need all these details to feel that we understand the context of it. And this is something I think a Millhauser specialty, which is uh his interest in place, and particularly a certain kind of town. And here it's all about. The creatureliness of this place, the shops, the the houses, the streets, and of course all the work going on, all the uh, edifice making, and and that's something I think that uh, Milhouse has been interested in throughout his career, and literally architecture. But of course that architecture begins to meld over into into how you know he builds his
0: story, into into perception. Yeah, it's he he's building the architecture of this story well. The story is about construction. Yeah. So I think we should probably just hear it, um, and then we can talk some more. So now here's chang Ray Lee reading Coming Soon by Stephen Milhauser.
1: Coming Soon. One Saturday afternoon in summer, Levinson, self-proclaimed refugee from the big city, sat at his favorite sidewalk cafe on Main Street, sipping an iced cappuccino and admiring the view. He felt, without vanity, the satisfaction of a man who knows he has made the right choice. This was no boring backwater, as his friend had warned. No cute little village with one white steeple and two red gas pumps, but a lively, thriving town. Women in smart dresses and broad-brimmed straw hats sashayed past within reach of his arm. Over the café railing, he watched husbands in baseball caps pushing baby carriages with one hand, and leading dogs with the other, while wives in oversized sunglasses gripped the handles of bright-colored shopping bags stuffed with blouses and bargain jeans. There were aging bikers with black head wraps and tattooed forearms, Japanese tourists in flowered shirts taking pictures with iPhones, swaggering teenage boys in sleeveless tees and low-slung cargo shorts, a stern hasid in a long black coat and a black high-crowned hat laughing girls with swinging hair and tight short shorts and platform wedge sandals. Even the shops and buildings seemed to be moving, breathing, changing shape as he watched. Across the street, two men behind a strip of yellow caution tape were lifting a plate-glass window into the renovated front wall of Manjardi's restaurant. Farther down, on a stretch of sidewalk cordoned off by a wooden partition, workers in hard hats were smashing crowbars into the brick façade of the Van der Hayden Hotel. And still farther away, where the stores and restaurants ended and the center of town gave way to muffler shops and motels, a tall red crane swung an I-beam slowly across the sky in the direction of a new three-level parking garage on the site of a torn-down strip mall. Levinson had moved here nearly a year ago when the consulting firm he worked for opened an upstate branch. He'd never regretted it. The city was a lost cause, what with the jammed-up traffic, the filthy subways, the decaying neighborhoods and crumbling buildings. The future lay in towns, in small, well-managed towns. He'd put a down payment on a shady house on a quiet street of overarching maples, but he hadn't kissed the city goodbye in order to sit back with his hands on his belly and live a soft life. He still worked as hard as ever, often staying at the office till six or seven. On weekends, he mowed his lawn, cocked his windows, cleaned his gutters, shoveled the drive. He was seeing two women, dinner and a movie, no more, while waiting for the right one to come along. He had a decent social life. The neighbors were friendly. He was 42 years old. On weekends and evenings, Whenever he was free, Levinson liked nothing better than to explore the streets of his town. Main Street was always alive, but that wasn't the only part of town with an energy you could feel. On residential streets, houses displayed new roofs, renovated porches, bigger windows, fancier doors. In outlying neighborhoods, empty tracts of land blossomed with medical buildings, supermarkets, family restaurants. During early visits to the town, He'd seen a field of bramble bushes with a sluggish stream change into a flourishing shopping plaza where stores shaded by awnings faced a parking lot studded with tree islands and flower beds. And shortly after his move, he'd watched day after day as a stretch of woods at the west end of town was cut down and transformed into a community of stone and shingle houses on smooth streets lined with purple-leaved Norway maples you could always find something new in this town, something you weren't expecting. His city friends, skeptics and mockers all, could say what they liked about the small-town doldrums, the backwater blues, but that didn't prevent them from coming up for the weekend, and even they seemed surprised at the vitality of the place, with its summer crowds, its merry-go-round in the park, its thronged farmer's market, and, wherever you looked, on curbsides and street corners, in vacant lots and fenced-off fields, men and machines at work, front-end loaders lifting dirt into dump trucks, excavators digging their tooth buckets into the earth, truck-mounted cranes unfolding, rising, stretching higher and higher into the sky. After paying at the cash register and dropping a couple quarters into the tip jar, Levinson set off on his post-cappuccino Main Street stroll though by now he knew the eight-block stretch of downtown as well as his own backyard. He was always coming upon things that took him by surprise. In the Chinese takeout, the tables were pushed to one corner, and a man with a power drill was boring into a wall. A sign in the window announced the opening of a new Vietnamese restaurant. From a platform on the scaffolding that rose along the facade of a nearby building Men in hard hats were adding scroll shaped support brackets to an apartment balcony. A new Asian bistro, which had taken the place of an Indian restaurant, now had a snazzy terrace reached by a flight of granite steps. Two men on ladders were installing a dark green awning. Half a block away, a long section of sidewalk had been closed off by an orange mesh fence, forcing Levinson to walk on a narrow strip of street ordered by a low wall of concrete blocks. Behind the mesh fence, he saw a bucket truck, a few men in lime green vests and white hard hats, piles of bricks and lumber, a man in a T-shirt and safety goggles standing on the platform of a scissor lift, and an orange safety cone with a small American flag stuck in the hole at the top. Another block, Levinson turned left onto West Broad and walked over to one of his favorite spots a fenced-off construction site on the corner of Maplewood. Here, the foundation was dug for an apartment building with ground-floor retail spaces, on land formerly occupied by the parking lot of a small department store. Through an open door in the wooden fence, Levinson looked down at the reddish earth, at the blue cab and silver drum of a concrete mixer, piles of mint-green plastic sewer pipes. He watched with pleasure as a yellow backhoe lifted a jawful of earth and debris into the bed of a high-piled dump truck, which immediately started up a dirt slope that led to the street. One thing Levinson liked about his adopted town was the way you could follow its daily evolution, chart its changes, pay close attention to every detail, without feeling, as you did in the city, that your head was about to crack open. Sleepy villages held no charm for him. His interest had quickened, when the real estate agent told him about high-tech businesses coming to town, bidding wars, being waged for prime locations, fancy condos on the way. The housing market was on the upswing. Lately, he'd been noticing even more activity than usual. The shops and restaurants changed hands. Apartment complexes sprang up. Old buildings came crashing down. Fields of shrub and weed clumps sent up clouds of brown dirt under the blades of dozers. As Levinson crossed Maine and headed back towards his neighborhood, he felt the familiar sensation of downtown trickling away in two blocks of bars and restaurants. And then, as if suddenly, you found yourself in a world of tree-lined streets and two-story houses with shutters and front porches. For a moment, it seemed that he'd come to another, quieter town. The impression quickly gave way to a sharper sense of things. A man stood on a ladder "'slapping paint onto the side of a house. "'Workmen on a roof were laying the rafters of a new dormer. "'And, in yard after yard, people were planting bushes, "'trimming trees, scraping paint from window frames, "'rushing to open doors as deliverymen carried couches, "'refrigerators, and dining-room tables "'along front walks and up steps. "'When Levinson reached his block, "'he waved to old Mrs. Brier sitting on her wicker settee, on the broad front porch. Nice work, he said, pointing to the recently replaced porch ceiling with its glistening walnut stain and the newly painted posts. She relaxed into one of her wide, girlish smiles, keeping her teeth covered by her lips. Levinson passed a freshly laid driveway that still gave off a smell of tar, stopped to examine a red flagstone walk that only a week ago had been squares of concrete. And... Stepping aside to let a neighbor girl in a brilliant pink helmet ride past on her training bike, he climbed his steps and sank into one of the two cushioned chairs beside his round iron table. In the warm shade, Levinson half-closed his eyes. Tomorrow, Sunday, he was flying down to Miami for two weeks to stay with his sister and nephews and visit his mother in assisted living. It would be good to see the family, good get away for a while. When you liked a place, you liked leaving it so that you could look forward to coming back. It was his town now, his home. Sometimes he wished he'd taken up another line of work, like civil engineering or town planning. He enjoyed thinking about large spaces, about putting things in them, arranging them in significant relations. Levinson felt the muscles of his neck relaxing. As he drifted toward sleep, he was aware of the sounds of his neighborhood the clatter of skateboard wheels, the zizroom, ziz room of a chainsaw, the dull rumble of a closing garage door, a burst of laughter, and always the chorus of hand-mowers and riding-mowers, of hedge-trimmers and pressure-washers, of electric edgers and power-pruners, and, beneath or above them all, like the beat at the hidden heart of things, the ring of hammers through the summer air. When he opened his eyes, he was surprised to find that he was no longer sitting in the shade of his front porch. For some reason, he was lying in a bed, in a room with a dark bureau slashed by a stripe of sun. As he stared at the bureau, it seemed to him that it was becoming more familiar, as if at any moment he might discover why it was there. Ah, he was in his bedroom. The sun was shining between the shade and the window frame. How had it happened? Levinson, Tried to remember the walk along Maine, the return to the front porch, the flight to Miami, his mother's frail hands, of course. He'd returned from Miami and hurled himself into a frantic week of work, staying late at the office and collapsing into bed immediately after dinner. Now it was Saturday. He slept later than usual. It was time for his morning routine breakfast, the lawn, the calls to his sister, his mother and his brother Murray in San Diego, the clean-up of the garage, before the walk into town for his bagel and iced cappuccino. Then dinner with a few friends at eight. As Levinson stepped onto his front walk, he noticed with surprise that the Mazowski's house across the street had grown larger. It stretched out on both sides, almost to the property lines. When he turned right and set off for town, he saw that the house of his neighbor's the Sandler's, was stucco instead of white shingle. It all must have happened while he was away. Walking along, he was struck by other changes. The Jorgensen house had a second porch above the first. In front of what's-his-name's-place, a tall hedge with a latticed entrance gate had replaced a row of forsythia bushes. And, as Levinson gave a wave to Mrs. Brier sitting on her porch, he saw high overhead a third story, with an octagonal tower at one end. On block after block the houses were escaping their old forms, turning into something new. He passed a half finished side porch propped up on brick piers. Men in hard hats were pacing the blonde floorboards. A nearby house had big bay windows and an attached garage that Levinson didn't recall seeing before. On one corner the sidewalk was closed to pedestrians. Beyond a portable chain link fence A small white house with a red roof stood entirely enclosed by the studs, beams, and rafters of a much larger house, which was being constructed around it. Levinson tried to imagine what would happen to the original house. Would it remain inside, a house within a house? But his attention was distracted by the neighboring house, a new two-and-a-half-story mansion faced in stone, with a roof garden, where a couple sat dining in the shade of an arbor. Forcing himself to lower his eyes because there was only so much you could take in before exhaustion struck you down, Levinson stared at the familiar sidewalk as he climbed the steep street leading to Main. When he reached the corner, he looked up and stopped in bewilderment. a five-story department store with immense display windows rose before him. It stood in the place once occupied by Jimmy's News Corner, Antique Choices, and the Main Street Marketplace. Next to the new building was a deep courtyard crowded with tables where people sat drinking dark beer. A sign said, Grand Opening. Everywhere Levinson looked, he saw new shops, new buildings, an ad agency, a Moroccan restaurant, a hair boutique, a gelato parlor. There was even a roofed arcade with a row of shops stretching back on each side. The old savings bank was still there with its high front steps and its fluted columns, but it stood... Two stories taller and was connected to a new building by a walkway enclosed in glass, in a space occupied weeks earlier by a men's clothing store and a wine shop. And though City Hall still stood across from the bank, one wall was covered by scaffolding and the front steps were concealed behind a plywood fence through which he could hear sounds of drilling and smashing. As Levinson made his way toward his ice cappuccino, he did his best to take it all in. The Vietnamese restaurant, which three weeks ago had replaced the Chinese takeout, was now a shop specializing in fancy chocolates. The old Vander Hayden Hotel looked like a Renaissance palazzo. The nail salon was a Swedish furniture store. In Levinson's Sidewalk Cafe, his Saturday retreat, with its iron railing and fringed umbrellas, the place he had longed for in Miami, was now Louise's Dress Shop with racks of sail dresses and silk scarves standing outside, under an awning. Scarcely had he registered his disappointment when he noticed a new sidewalk café a few stores down, where dark red fabric stretched between iron posts. Soon he was sitting in the shade of a table umbrella, drinking an iced cappuccino and trying to get a grip on things. The changes were stunning, almost impossible to believe but a lot could happen in three weeks, especially in a town like this. Levinson was all too familiar with the kind of person who deplored change, who swooned over old buildings, and spoke vaguely but reverently of earlier times. And though he was startled and a little dizzied by the sight of the new downtown, which made him wonder whether he had fallen asleep on his porch and was dreaming at all, he looked out at the street with sharp interest, for he was wide awake, drinking his iced cappuccino on a Saturday afternoon in town. It was not one of those people who, whenever the wrecking ball swung against the side of a building, felt that a country or a civilization was coming to an end. Invigorated by his rest, Levinson set off on a Saturday stroll along Main Street, determined to let nothing escape him. He examined the displays in the windows of new stores, observed the redesigned facades of half-familiar buildings. He passed the marble steps and broad glass doors of something called Exquisico Enterprises, where he remembered a jeweler's and a cigar store. At the end of Main, he turned onto West Broad and walked to the corner of Maplewood to see how his construction site was coming along. It was no longer there. Along the entire length of Maplewood, on both sides, five-story brick apartment complexes broad balconies rose above new stores shaded by ornamental pear trees. Levinson tried to recall the earlier street, the wooden fence with the opening, an office supply store, Nagel's dry-cleaning, but he became uncertain. Maybe he was leaving out a building or two. It wasn't a street he knew particularly well. He walked along the new Maplewood, checking the shop windows, looking up at a family having lunch on a fourth-floor balcony hung with baskets of flowers. He passed an opening between buildings, which gave a glimpse of a wide courtyard, where a clown with painted tears on his white face stood juggling dinner plates in a circle of seated children holding balloons. At the next street, he turned left toward Main. He had a clear view of the new sidewalk café, with its red fabric railing. Next door, workmen were replacing the brick with stone, under a sign that read, Coming Soon. He had a confused sense as he crossed Main Street, that the stores were no longer the same, that everything had changed again, but surely he was mistaken, an effect of over-excitement in the oppressive afternoon heat. Tired now, Levinson began to make his way home. When he reached the tree-lined streets at the outskirts of his neighborhood, he realized that he must have made a wrong turn somewhere, for he was passing houses he had never seen before, though some seemed dimly familiar. Maybe it was a street he knew, whose houses had all received new breezeways, gables, porches, add-ons, or maybe the old houses had all been torn down and replaced with new ones. He hadn't gone far when a row of orange and white-striped barrels blocked his way. Beyond the barrels, people stood watching something in a yard. It seemed to Levinson that, between two houses with enjoining lawns, a paver fed by a drum truck, was laying asphalt on a new roadbed, leaving only narrow strips of grass on both sides. Levinson turned back. He found another street, where he spotted a porch that he thought he recognized, though he could no longer be sure. He turned right, past a half-finished house with walls wrapped in pink insulation, and came to a line of sawhorses stretching across the road. He turned onto another street. From a porch, someone waved. It was old Mr. Gillen, who lived on Levinson Street, a block from his house. The heat had exhausted Levinson. His temples throbbed. His forearms glistened. Under familiar branches, unknown house fronts shimmered in the sun. A bike helmet lay sideways on a front lawn, like a gaping mouth. Suddenly, his house rose up. Levinson climbed onto the porch, gripping the iron rail. He sank into one of the chairs. His head was hot. Across the street, a large backhoe stood on the front lawn, blocking half of the Mazowski's house. In the warm shade, Levinson closed his eyes. When he opened his eyes, a light rain was falling. Under the dark gray sky, porch lights were on. Windows glowed yellow. On the strip of lawn between the sidewalk and the street, a sawhorse sat next to a safety cone. He imagined them coming closer, advancing along his front walk, In the dusky air, the houses across the way reminded him of a childhood trip he'd taken with his parents to some place in Arizona or New Mexico. Through the window of his hotel room, he had stared out anxiously at the wrong-looking houses with their strange chimneys, their make-believe doors. Levinson stiffened. The dinner. It was already 7.25. He wouldn't have time for a shower, just enough time to towel himself down, change his clothes. Ten minutes later, when Levinson stepped out his front door, the rain had stopped. A crack of pale sky showed through the somber clouds. The street lights had come on. On his front lawn, he saw a length of gleaming steel pipe. Across the street, a wire fence ran along the curb, enclosing the front yard and the backhoe. Three men, dark against the evening sky, stood on the roof of the Mazowski's house. On the side of the Sandler's house, rose a two-story scaffold tower that Levinson hadn't noticed before. A man in a hard hat stood next to him, with his fists on his hips, looking over at him. Levinson backed his car out of the drive and headed down his block in the direction of Maine. The restaurant where he was meeting his friends was on the far side of town, out by the new mall. At the end of the second block, Levinson Street was closed off. Men in hard hats stood "'bent over jackhammers as they tore up the road. "'Levinson turned right. "'Halfway down the street, "'a large truck with two safety cones "'on its front bumper stood in the way. "'A man with an orange stripe across his jacket "'was waving him to the right, "'where a narrow lane ran between backyards. "'At the end of the lane, "'Levinson turned onto a street that felt unfamiliar, "'though it couldn't have been far from his house. "'The sun had dropped beneath the roof-lines.' Against a darkening sky a crane was lowering something onto a roof. At the next corner he turned again, but he was no longer certain whether he was heading toward Maine or away from it. He passed a large house where a crowd of people were laughing on a wraparound porch. Someone raised a glass as if to him. In an orange glow of sodium vapor lamps, Levinson kept looking for a street that would lead into the center of town, but he found himself in an unknown neighborhood, where a stretch of half-built houses gave way to a dark field. Behind a chain-link fence, a tower crane rose up beside an immense frame of steel beams. Levinson turned around and headed back. It was 7.55. He came to a street of two-story houses with front porches. It seemed to be his own street, though it was hard to tell. At the end of the block, men with lights on their hats were excavating a front yard. Levinson lowered his window. How do I get to Maine? he shouted. That way, one of the men called, waving him to the left. Levinson turned left. In the light of a flickering street lamp, he saw a half constructed house with roof trusses in place. In the blackness of the next yard, he made out a dim foundation covered by floor joists. The street came to an end. An unpaved path led into what appeared to be a forest metal sign leaning against a tree read, Men at Work. As Levinson followed the path, branches scraped sharply against the side of his car. The path widened, began to rise. Guardrails appeared. He was on a ramp. All at once, Levinson found himself on a six-lane highway, where ruby taillights rushed away into the distance. On the other side of the divider, yellow headlights came streaming toward him. Under a blue-black sky, Levinson entered the second lane, passed below a sign with a name, an exit number he did not recognize, and rode off into the night.
0: That was Chang-Rae Lee, reading Coming Soon by Stephen Milhauser. The story appeared in The New Yorker in December of 2013 and was included in Milhauser's story collection, Voices in the Night, which was published by Knopf in 2015. So, Chengwei, on a on a general level, you were saying before we started taping that you were drawn to Stephen Milhauser's stories at this time in our history and our our way of life. Do you think that this one speaks to you particularly right now because of pandemics and lockdowns? And
1: well, yeah, you know, well, we've become during this period, of course, quite familiar with our surroundings. I think, <laughs> in a way that we've never uh, been before, <laughs> and, I, and I think. Our surroundings, both internal and external. Obviously, you know what we're now being forced to be with, uh, which is just our internal spaces. You know, depending on your circumstance and and I guess one's means. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we're I think we're becoming much more intimate with everything that is around us that we have and that has us <laughs> during these last you know <laughs> nine or so months. At the same time, I, I'm also more aware of the outside because it's because I'm looking out the window all the time, thinking about what I want to do next, when I can do it. Uh, and so I think um, I think there's a new appreciation of of the world. And again, it's the world, of course, as a place in itself, but a reflection of you know what any particular person wants and needs. and, and yeah. you know that's different, of course, for all of us.
0: Yeah. And well, maybe there's a sense, too, that when we emerge from from this, things will have changed. We'll be unrecognizable.
1: Yeah. And maybe they've changed even if they haven't changed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we see them differently.
1: You know, the most obvious thing is everyone talks about how we'll look at restaurants differently. We'll look at a yeah. subway car differently. And even if they're the same thing. And I think that's part of what is happening here a little bit in coming soon i mean one of the wonderful things about any no story is that you know they're all sort of fables they're all sort of fantasies they don't quite exist in our world even though he describes the world as it is i think in great detail uh, and with great veracity but one of the things i love so much about uh, his work is that it also exists on on the level of the fantastic and that's that, you know, that feeling of mystery that you can sometimes get with great writing, where it feels absolutely real and authentic, and at the same time, you know, transcends the moment. And, and his landscape here transcends the moment. I mean, he describes a small town, a small, well-managed town, and it's exactly that. And we all, I think we all know what that town is. We could probably actually name a few towns that, that, you know, mm-hmm. that line up with, with this fictional one. Um, but of course, it it would be boring if it were really that town.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, yeah. It, it
1: would be dull to read and continue to read the story. The, the story only works because the town becomes something else. It it hits a different kind of register of yeah. color and,
0: and tone. But when you're reading the story for the second or third time, even from the very beginning, there's something strange <laughs> about this town. You know, everything in it is in transition. Everything's being torn down and replaced. And that's what draws Levinson there. That's what he likes about it. We have that first kind of panning shot of men smashing crowbars into the hotel and the crane moving I beams right. uh, to build on the side of a torn down strip mall. You know, it's new, renovated, everything's springing up on empty land. And on one level, that is what happens, but the scale of, of what's happening here is not quite a real one. No. And,
1: you know, and it, it has suitably all the, all the diversity, right. Aging bikers, uh, Hase, you know, teenagers, again, it does have the, have the scrim of reality, but the density of the, of the, of the layers of energy, of change, of, you know, you could just say renovation, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is a, you know, an interesting key word for this story. And maybe going back to it, but we mentioned before about a certain velocity. That's the feeling that is introduced to us early on, which is, yes, yes, these are real details, but there's something a little, there's a little madness here. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's sort of what, um, you know, in, in his other stories too, there's always this little bit of madness that a gleam of it that ends up getting, I think, deeper um, and, and weightier as the stories go on.
0: Yeah. I mean, Levinson himself is not, not quite normal, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: as a character, you know, he's not a character that you know. Say, in the in the hands of a different writer, where we know everything about him, and we really don't know a lot about him. You know, we, he we know that he has a mother in Miami. We know that he has some friends. We know that he dates two women, but you know, just dinner and a coffee. Um, kind of, yeah, generic details, really. Um yeah. We don't get the kind of stuff about him that we might with the more traditionally realistic maximalist writer, right we're not privy to all the peregrinations of his thought, yeah, it's pretty funneled um pretty you know rigorously curated by by millhauser, yeah, he's a character who uh we find out very quickly you know wishes that he had been a civil engineer or urban planner or a town planner, <laughs> which of course. You know, it, it makes us realize, again, how how careful the writer is here in saying, no, this character only belongs in this story. He doesn't really belong in the outside world. <laughs> um, and that's what is something I do remind my students when when we, we talk about short fiction is because of the, the scale of the story and the fact that you can't go everywhere. You know, you do very much have to convince the reader that this character belongs in this story and only this story. Um, and i think milhauser is uh, you know he's a master at that but he has the, enough enough detail i think that we we can believe that he's a real person but not go so far as to think of that he has the idiosyncrasies of of a different kind of character
0: yeah well we we're told right away he's a refugee from the from the big city but also that what attracted him in this town is that big companies are moving there, that it's changing. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. It's very strange to move from, you know, <laughs> presumably New York city to a small town because it's about to be overrun with urban renewal.
1: Right. It, he's quite prideful, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's someone who, you know, cause he does mention his friends, you know, sort of poo-pooing the idea, uh, but yeah. then they're always up there visiting. Right. And he's very mm-hmm. proud of, uh, of as you say the the accouterments of of prosperity and a certain kind of i don 't know if it's gentrification but it's it's certainly betterment <laughs> you know, yeah civic betterment
0: expansion and, renewal yeah uh,
1: so he has that kind of small town hard won you know suburban american pride in his place um, mm-hmm. and that's i think uh, pivotal for the story he's, yeah. he's someone who really identifies with place and is a creature of that place.
0: He's also someone who likes to go to a construction site and watch the the bulldozers (laughs) move, which, you know, reminds me of my eight-year-old nephew. (laughs) This is his favorite place in town is watching a construction site. It gives him
1: pleasure. I think the word comes up quite a few times in the story. Yeah. And a pleasure that I think we don't get to hear about in other aspects of his life. Very intentionally, I think we don't hear about his pleasure of going out on these dates. We don't hear about any pleasure about visiting his mother. Uh, maybe that's not pleasurable. <laughs> but we, yeah, but, but we really don't. He doesn't really have intimacy with any other person. He's he's in a sense in solitary confinement of his choosing, and you know that goes back to your original question about how things are in this pandemic period. And I think that's one of the things that that struck me about the story too is that. We're all kind of in solitary confinement, presumably of our making, you know, in terms of at least what we can control. But, he, but with Levinson, of course, it's, it's a little larger because um, he feels, even though it's not him doing all this work and renovation, he seems to be kind of the officer of it, you know, at least in his mind.
0: Self-appointed, yeah.
1: It, it, it reflects upon him, to his thinking, well. And so it's it's a way for him to touch the world and, and to be, in a funny way, human. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah. At the same time, he's such a contradiction because all he wants is to witness change. And he's such a creature of habit. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got to have his iced cappuccino. He's got to walk down to Main Street. Right. You know? right. He's got to wave at the old lady on her porch. Um,
1: he's a creature, and without maybe being conscious of it, who revels and who who is satisfied and and calmed by control, right, and about routine. And, well, we haven't talked much about, like, the suburban landscape, but, uh, and you know, I'm not sure if this is exactly suburban or exurban, probably more like a train line, you know, that kind of town. But, mm-hmm. um, but that's the dream of it, right, that town planning, about where the town planning is not just about orderliness and cleanliness, but a certain orderliness and cleanliness to one's existence, to one's life and sense of self. Know, that that outside agency is, is minimized. And I'll go back to that line that I mentioned from the start, well-managed, you know, he doesn't want to live in a small town. He needs a well-managed place. To, yeah. Um, and that also is something that, that gives him a lot of sense of calm.
0: He's a very rare person who cheers when, when forests are cut down for <laughs> a strip to build a department <laughs> store or a mall, you know? Well, he's, um, he's,
1: He's totally bought into it, not aggressively, but it's just. I think he finds his belonging in those kinds of vitalities, you know, civic vitalities. And I think that's what starts to happen in the story is that, and this is, you know, of course, what what all writers do is that they present a certain situation that seems fine, uh, that seems even natural and maybe faded, but then of course things start to turn.
0: Yeah. So, at what point does the story stop being? a realistic one to you? At what point do you, you get a signal that makes you think we're going to shift?
1: You always know when someone takes a nap <laughs> that once they wake up <laughs> from that nap, something's different. Yeah. Um, and one of the things about the nap is that there's a mention of time. You know, he's got like a dinner with friends at eight and the story opens, it's just a Saturday. And, you know, but then, but then of course, everything changes. Presumably he goes to Miami and then he comes back and, and then everything gets kind of messed up. And we, as readers, I think, where we do a double take and think, oh, wait a minute, I guess this must be a different Saturday. But what's great about the story is that it doesn't say that. It just says, it keeps, it keeps repeating that, you know, uh, and especially later in the story, uh, about the sort of clock ticking towards eight o'clock, right? Uh, we're going mm-hmm. to notice uh, two thirds of the way in that it's like seven twenty-five, and then very right. Right, right towards the end of the story that it's seven fifty-five. Presumably on the same day, but of course it doesn't feel like the same day at all. It could be many, many years later, and we can talk about that.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Is is this a, a Rip Van Winkle story? Is it has he woken up suddenly? Well, into the future, it doesn't seem that way to me because things change even after he's woken up yeah, in the course of a yeah. day. I don't think
1: it's a rip wet Ben Winkle story he's really fallen asleep. I mean, I, I think he does fall asleep in that moment, but we're not told that well, he's been falling asleep now, you know, and he's going to be falling asleep serially for the rest of his life
0: <laughs> and waking up we're somewhere just different,
1: popping into his waking here and there um, mm-hmm. that's one way to read the story uh, where things continually change you know and, and and the clues that we get in his neighborhood um you know as he as he ventures out in each in each episode um you know show that right the, the houses get more and more monstrous um, and there's also a commentary about that you know all these porticos and porches and mm-hmm. um bulwarks and towers and Um, You know, there's just a lot of stuff becoming a little bit monstrous and certainly disorienting. Uh, So suddenly Levinson is not, as I think we felt at the beginning of the story, at the helm of this activity, Uh, even if being at the helm means just being a very close observer of it. Uh, Suddenly his observational confidence is a little shaken.
0: Well, it becomes sort of organic somehow. It's as though so the houses are growing, sprouting towers and and balconies. You know there's something that feels like natural growth and also which makes it feel a bit like a horror story you know?
1: yeah. well it does and and I think with with that growth, you know there's a certain kind of as you say horror or monstrous fecundity here that reminds us too um. And and I think this is just a sense that we have at the beginning of the story, but we, we realize Levinson is not the main character of the story, not really, not only, you know, exclusively, it's also the place. And that's I think another feature of Nohauser's work is uh, and his interest in architecture and his interest in edifices that once built, they can have their own kind of uh beingness um mm-hmm. and trajectory, literally. Yeah. Um, and sort of independent of us, you know. Maybe we initiate, we as humans initiate these things, uh, as we do with civilization, but that it can run a little wild. So I think here there's there's definitely, I think, uh, you know, a commentary on um, prosperity and its discontents, but also I think in a you know less negative way, a kind of celebration and awe at what we can engineer and what that engineering can then become
0: yeah. It starts to become frightening for Levinson himself. There's something about that image of the small house being completely enclosed Mm -hmm. inside a larger house. That for me is where it starts to really have the elements of horror. You think about, you know, what happens when you go in that (laughs) house and and what's happening to the people in the small house.
1: Yes, I, I noted that too. That's where I thought things become start to become more surreal. And and again, even though it's an apt and a realistic description in in a way, right, um, of course, that's how we build things, kind of change the outside. But but that image of, you know, a small white house with a red roof stood entirely enclosed by the studs, beams and rafters of a much larger house, Mm -hmm. Um, both as a replacement, but also it being sort of consumed, literally. Right? By the Mm -hmm. by the superstructure of that larger house. And it made me then think about not just the houses in the story, but but about Levinson too, is like, is there a person within a person? (laughs) You know, you know, that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without him not really knowing it, is he changing? You know, we don't see any changes in him. You know, Milhauser doesn't describe him aging or you know, anything physical about him. It's only what he sees. But in a way, for me, it starts to I think describe something about how perhaps he's he's being replaced or consumed by the by the person he is um, mm-hmm. uh, as he moves through this landscape and as he moves through presumably time as well
0: um, yeah, um, I mean, we think only a few weeks have passed, but but it's possible that the person who fell asleep is not the person who woke up
1: exactly exactly, even though he's contained in there um, yeah and and that that new. Structure that new person, whoever that is, uh, is related, but but now is on a, a slightly different footing, and mm-hmm. and of course that's disorienting, and um and maybe has to you know look at things and and his own situation differently.
0: Yeah, there's a moment when Levinson wonders if you know all the change that he's seeing if it's all a dream, which you know is the classic story trope. It was all a dream. And he says, "No, it's not." But do we think that perhaps it is? Yeah. Well, I never. I
1: didn't read it that way. I guess maybe because it just, as with all those that that story trope, that that mechanism, it's it's kind of dull, and it it, yeah. it it stops me
0: thinking. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> you know, I it sort of stops me in, in my tracks if I really go there. I rather, yeah. I rather think that. That it's a dream, that it's this living, continuous dream that he has, that we all have. You know, that we feel like we're, we're tracking time, we feel like we're in a certain kind of chronology, but that, in fact, that chronology, you know, is both defying us and, and deluding us. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I found uh, quite moving about the story in a surprising way. I felt a little bit like Levinson as I was looking back. You know, it made me think about the places where I'd lived and the people that I'd met and the things that I'd done and how I both mistook a lot of things in terms of placing them in my life and, and how things repeat and just take different forms. So, so no, I, I guess I didn't actually think it was a dream, but it's just the way our minds work. Um, yeah, and that to me was more interesting
0: so you've jumped to sort of a larger meaning in your own life do you think that we should see the story as in a sense a metaphor for how we live for modern life for the pace of progress or what we call progress
1: yeah I think I think that Levinson um, has subscribed heart and soul and cell to you know a certain kind of notion of progress. And I think he identifies so closely with that. In some ways he's extremely materialistic (laughs) in a Mm funny way, even though it's Mm -hmm. not about his iPhone or this or that. It's just he's and maybe that's a that's a suburban creature, but it's also maybe an American creature or a creature of the first world. Mm -hmm. Rather than someone who, you know, who is taking the time to look around at the changes, the formations and deformations in the people around
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that, and that I think is, it's a, maybe the, maybe that's the cautionary bit
0: about this too. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the authorial voice in the story, not necessarily Milhauser, but perhaps Milhauser, do you feel that this narrator is approving or disapproving of what Levinson finds in this town
1: I think he's a little bit of both in the sense that you know maybe with maybe with a lot of millhauser stories there's there's a a bitter irony to them again that you know Levinson has pride of place, and I think the sense of it is that that pride of place is not something that can endure mm-hmm. At the same time, I think what Levinson undergoes is a certain transmutation that has dignity, even if it's unavoidable no <laughs> inevitable and not <laughs> um, right so right. I, so there's there's a a sense that that um that this is how it is and and we shouldn't think of Levinson as someone who's who's only tragic. Um you know, and I think right. I, I compare him to, you know, another famous suburban character, you know, Nettie Merrill in The Swimmer, Cheever's the Swimmer. Mm-hmm. Um and interestingly enough, I remember now that that Nettie Merrill at the beginning of the story thinks of himself as a cartographer. And that's how how Cheever I think you know goes yeah. up and shows us like the, the layout of everything that's that, that Nettie Merrill is going to do as he swims away his way across the county. But, but I think with Nettie Merrill, you know, I, I think we're supposed to feel that he's a very tragic character that, that he has no understanding of what's going on and that he sort of deserves it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, he's just swimming through his life.
1: Yeah. And, and I think with Levinson, that's not quite the case.
0: It feels as though Levinson is just determined not to be, crushed by the passage of time or the passage of change. He's still working,
1: right? Yeah. He's still out there searching. He's trying to figure out why he's so disoriented.
0: So where do we we leave him? What do you make of the very ending? You know, he basically drives down a path in the woods (laughs) and emerges on a six-lane highway. And when you're writing a short story, you have the luxury of just leaving him on that highway. <laughs>
1: yeah, but, but, but I know where is he the going? A uh, detail that I noted was there's a sign with, with a name and exit number he did not recognize.
0: Mm-hmm. But he goes right by it. Yeah. He's in a new
1: place. Or it's a place that is not new, but it's changed so much that it's new to him. And it's really it's the same place. But I love the, the last words, which are he rode off into the night uh, yeah. and rode off into the night. And I, I thought that was wonderful that, that it, it wasn't just that he was stuck there, you know, frantic and, yeah. and wounded. Maybe this is the huge difference between him and that Nettie Merrill. You know, Nettie Merrill is banging on the door, confused, but Levinson is moving. Whether he's alive or dead, and I'm not quite sure i i you know i there's a way that you could read the story and he's he's going to the next place mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> um but he's still he's still vital, you know he still has this energy and and that for me is quite
0: quite hopeful yeah, yeah, though in those last words that you that you quoted. He rode off into the night. He didn't drive off into the night. Yeah. yeah. Um. So something of his agency is is slightly gone. It's, it's almost, slightly gone. You know, he's yeah. being carried.
1: It's true. it's true. He's on the sled.
0: He <laughs> <laughs> can't. he can't um, quite control and,
1: it. And maybe that's maybe that's something about you know just time you know yeah. scooping him up.
0: I read um, an interview with Milhauser. Um, about people calling his stories you know realistic or not realistic and he said I mess with reality in the name of reality. Mm. Another way of putting it is that I don't mess with reality, I mess with the assumption that reality is perfectly captured by middle of the road realist fiction. I'd argue that the convention of the realist story doesn't begin to do justice to the blazing thing that deserves the name of reality. So do you think reality by that definition is what he's captured here?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he's—that's his genius, right? And that's the genius of all of all great writers is that they show us something about reality that that disturbs and disorients, and that makes it fresh and, and new. I think after you read "Coming Soon," it's it's hard to walk down the street of your prosperous little town and see it and see it the same way. And most importantly, feel the same way about yourself.
0: Milhauser has, has renovated your perspective. He's
1: <laughs> <is> exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and maybe he'll make you question, as he did for me, what have I been doing all these years, observing all the things and, and, and celebrating all the things that I feel I love, like and take pleasure in? I think that's, that's the magic of uh, this story and the magic of all great stories.
0: Well, thank you so much, Chang-Rae.
1: Thank you, Deborah. It's fun to care.
0: Stephen Milhauser is the author of four novels and nine story collections, including We Others and, most recently, Voices in the Night. His novel, Martin Dressler, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1997. Chang-Rae Lee has published five novels, including Native Speaker, which won the Penn Hemingway Award in 1996, and The Surrendered, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2011. His sixth novel, My Year Abroad, will come out in February. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazines read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.